you know anyone who right now, at this moment, is experiencing serious suffering? Perhaps you know someone who is grieving the loss of a family member or a loved one. How do you comfort your friend? More than that, how do you walk with him or her through the valley of suffering, grief, and sorrow? Does a Christian have more to offer in this situation than an unbeliever? Let's talk about this very important challenge on today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathard with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, we all have sad or discouraging days, and most of the time we work our way through it. But when someone receives a cancer diagnosis or a friend receives news of a sudden, unexpected death in the family, it calls on us to show the utmost caring and comfort for that person in their time of need. We know now is the time to step up. When that happens, what do you do? What do I do? Yes. I was... uh... The main thing is uh, just to do it, just to go be with them. Easily said, not so easily done. It's not fun. It's It's hard. Yeah, it's hard, and it's not enjoyable. And uh, uh, you know know you're about to live in somebody else's pain for a little bit. One of the mistakes you can – it's easy for a lot of people to make is to try and make the other person happy or feel better. It's important to realize that this is a um, this is a defense mechanism on our part. It, it's, it's because you know it's no fun to be with somebody who's hurting. It's it's easy for and you wouldn't say this probably out loud, but or even in the front of your brain. But I want them to be happy so that this our, our being together here for the next few minutes won't be painful for me. Um, but that would be the wrong thing to do. Anybody who's experienced. Uh, you know, deep grief or, or heartbreak knows that people trying to make you feel better is the wrong thing to do. So just to go and to be with that person and just know I'm going to experience their pain, which means this is not going to be any fun. This is going to be painful, but I want to be with them right now. That's the main thing is just to go and be with them. Let's say that I find myself in a situation where I need to extend comfort to a friend. I know I need to be there. But I wonder, what if I say or do the wrong thing? What if I, heaven forbid, make it worse? So maybe I'll leave the comfort role to someone else. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's two mistakes that we can make here. And one is, you know, so the, the, the idea, I, I'm going to, I might make it worse. What if I, I don't know what to say or do? You know, two mistakes, opposite mistakes. One would be to say, oh, I'm just not going to go then. And like like we already talked about, you you got to be there. It's time to step up. It's time to be present in your person's life. The other mistake would be I'm going to go there and I'm going to talk a lot, and um, that would be a huge mistake too, <laughs> uh, because honestly, people who are grieving don't need a lot of words. They don't need a lot of talk. What what they just need is your presence with them, to just somebody to be with them somebody to embrace their suffering, somebody to help carry that load just by being there. There's um, uh, Tim Keller, uh, New York City pastor who uh, passed away just recently. Um, he referenced this book one time in a sermon or a book he had written, 
And I, I looked up the quote and found it so I could drop it on you guys. Uh, it's a, a guy by the name of Joe Bailey, who uh, he and his wife lost three of their sons. Uh, just different different circumstances. This is back in the 1970s, I want to say. He wrote a book called uh, The View from a Hearse. And in the book, he said something that's very telling. And I think it's important because it's coming from somebody who has thoughtfully grieved and who knows what it's like to grieve. That's a different experience than knowing somebody who's grieved. Uh, but he says this. He says, um, one of his sons had passed away. And he says, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I wished he would go away, and he finally did. And then another friend came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He sat beside me for an hour or more. He listened when I said something. He answered briefly. He prayed simply, and he left, and I hated to see him go. And what he was saying was is that just having that person share my grief with me, to be it, just, just as come and love me enough to not try and fix my grief, but, but both of us knew it would be ridiculous to try to do that. You can't fix grief, especially with words. But to come and just sit there and say, I will feel your pain with you. I, I love you enough to experience your grief with you. That's so, people crave that so much when they're grieving. What they hate is know-it-alls who come in and talk a lot and try and, especially people who say truisms, you know, stupid stuff like, well, the sun comes up tomorrow or God's got a plan or, you know, for Christians, all things work together for good and that sort of stuff, which is true. The sun does come up tomorrow and God does have a plan and God does make all things work together for good. The worst thing in the world to do is to say that to somebody in the middle of grief because it's trite and because it's clearly a pain avoidance. And what people want and what people crave is somebody to weep with them when they weep and to mourn with them when they mourn, just like the enjoyable stuff, to rejoice with them when they rejoice, but to do the painful stuff too in their lives. That's love. Why do I think, with no statistical evidence to back up this presumption, that in general, we're much more likely to commit one of those two errors than to do what you just suggested is probably the most prudent thing to do, and that's just be there. Um, if that's true, then we probably know what it's like to mess that up and then decide, I'm never doing this again. I'm just going to stay right. away from it. Yeah. Um, what can we say here today that would help somebody who's listening to us? Yeah. That makes sense to me. Just be there. It's kind of hard to do. It almost feels like you're being insensitive by just being there and not doing hardly anything. Yeah. I think that it feels insensitive. I have a couple comments. That's a good question. I, one comment is it feels insensitive because we as Westerners, we are programmed to believe, this is an Enlightenment era mistake, we're programmed to believe that if we can just figure out the right technique, the right four bullet points, we can fix stuff. And there's some stuff that just can't be fixed. Deep grief. But it's hard to shake that notion of like, you know, you type in Google, what do I say to somebody at a funeral? You know, how do I make somebody's grief better? And you're, we're, you know, we're looking for like, what are the three things that I can do? To, and sometimes it's just important to say, the brokenness of this world is too big for 
us to fix with any sort of technique. That's one thing. And just to abandon that and say, I can't fix this. It would be a mistake to try to fix this. The other thing is that, and um, this is kind of, I'm saying this is easy to say and much more complicated and much more involved to do, but to begin to learn to love our people deeply, to, to learn to love people selflessly, and to, to practice that and to be, when the moment comes when they're deeply grieving, to already be building up habits and mental dispositions and emotional dispositions of selfless love. Because, what ha- you know, when I, when I go, t- when, and this happens quite a bit, like people will want me to come and be with them as, as a parent dies, or I'll get the phone call that, uh, that, um, you know, a teenage daughter has suddenly passed away. This has happened recently. And to, to go to their house with them as, you know, the coroner is there collecting their daughter and to, 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 to think I've got to fix this or I don't want this to be so painful for me or this is awkward. And to think that I can talk myself out of their pain and talk myself out of my own pain being in their pain is a lack of love. It's a lack of love. It puts me first before then, before them. And so to, to, to work on and to pray for deep love for the people in my life, I think is something that we can do in advance to prepare for this. I want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is verses 3 through 7. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I've read this uh, passage many times to try to get my hands on it. I I can't quite get there. I think he uses the words comfort and uh, comforted 10 times. Mm. It is obviously the theme of this passage. Right. But I, I feel like when I try to insert that into my understanding, it's like putting a round peg in a square hole. I just can't quite get it to fit. So I guess the question is, is the comfort that comes from the God of all comfort different than the comfort that typically comes from the world or the non-God part of our culture? Uh, yes. I, I don't know if this will answer that question for you. But I've been struck, too, by that text when I've read it before, that it talks a lot about comfort, but it doesn't say what the comfort, like, it doesn't tell you how to give that comfort or what it's like to receive that comfort. It just talks about the comfort. And I've always been a little bit like, well, so how am I supposed to use this to get comfort for myself or to give comfort to others? And I think that by and large, um, well, I shouldn't say by and large, I think that first of all, that's that's not why he uses the word comfort there so much, although we can get to comfort through the path that I'm going to take us for the next couple seconds, if it's okay. I, but Paul 
is echoing, I, I firmly believe that in 2 Corinthians 1, and actually throughout the rest of the letter, especially up to chapter 7, Paul is echoing the great comfort passage of Isaiah 40 to 55, which starts off with um, just the wonderful verse, comfort, comfort ye my people, says your God, speak comfortably, or, or, or ten, using the word of comfort, not, not comfortably in the sense of like at ease, but speak comfort to Jerusalem and tell her that her warfare is ended. I'm quoting uh, from the King James Version now. And the, the comfort there in Isaiah 40 to 55 is not emotional comfort. Like, you know, they're there, you should feel better. It's this great comfort that God gives his people after they've been in exile in Babylon for a hundred years. And God delivers them from that slavery in Babylon and promises in Isaiah 40 to 66, I'm going to take you out of Babylon and restore you to your homeland. And I'm going to heal Jerusalem and I'm going to heal you. And I'm going to bring about a new creation. And all of of your enemies are going to suddenly turn and be on your side and are going to serve you and serve me, uh, their new God. And Isaiah in, in, in this section of scripture calls that comfort. It's this, it's not emotional comfort first. It's the comfort of salvation. It's the comfort of creation being renewed. It's the comfort of God putting all things to right again and getting rid of the curse, getting rid of death and broken relationships and broken environment. And out of that comes this sense of comfort in the emotional realm. So when we look at first, second Corinthians uh, chapter one, and we think, what does this mean for comfort for us? I think the first move is to to read it in light of Isaiah 40 to 66. And, and it's a fancy way of saying, read it in light of God's plan to renew all things and how even the suffering that happens in this world is bound up with his own suffering on the cross, which he is using to fix the whole world through the power of, 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 of cross-based redemption and the empty tomb. God is fixing the whole world. And so for those of us who are suffering, and this is where you're right, Christians do have an advantage here because for us, suffering is not meaningless. It's not random. It's not, you know, so it's not like you get the cancer diagnosis and why is this happening to me is a question that everybody asks. And Christians are uniquely positioned to answer this in terms of because we live in a broken world where suffering has happened, but God himself has embraced our suffering. God has cancer with us. But after his death, he rose from the dead to fix cancer, to cure cancer. So in the middle of my suffering, you know, if if, if my particular suffering is the suffering of a disease like cancer, I can remind myself from scripture, I can hear in Christian community, I can sense in the presence of my brothers and sisters who have gathered with me to share my pain with me. I know from the story of scripture that my suffering is not the end of the story, that there is resurrection coming, that there is new creation coming. And at the end of the day, everything will be good. All will be well. Yeah, so Christians, like I know it's a roundabout way to get to the answer to your question. Uh, Christians are uniquely positioned to answer this question. Chuck, I think you're right. Because for us, suffering is not random. It's not just pure, unadulterated evil. It's bound up with the cross of Jesus Christ, the very suffering of God, which promises healing. So let's explore that a little bit further for the Christian who's listening to us and says, what? I've, I do think that suffering is random. I do think that the things that you just said for Christians, it's not. I, 
that's what I think is true. So can you further explain that? Yes. I, well, I, I, I'm trying to think of a way I could uh, dig in it more deeply than I've just done. Um, the question of why does suffering happen, th- there's no really good logical answer to that. There's no textbook answer to that. Scripture never tries to give us an answer to that. If you talk to philosophers, none of the philosophers have ever given us an answer to that. And, and almost all, every good philosopher, he or she will tell you, I don't have a good answer for that. We're not get, the answer to that question, but uh, let me just say this. The Bible does answer that question, but not with an answer. If I can't uh, be obtuse. Oh, that's a, Very that helpful, clears right? it up, yeah. yeah the, the answer to the question of the problem of evil is not a philosophical solution. It's not a textbook answer. It's not even words. The answer to the problem of evil is a person. God himself has embraced our suffering. He, do, he never tells us why suffering has happened. But he, what he does is say, I will be here with you. I will experience it with you. When you die, I will experience that with you. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live in 2 Corinthians, also, you know, in a text later on from the one you're reading, he says, you know, we carry about in our bodies all day the sufferings of Jesus so that we can also make manifest in our bodies his resurrection power, his life. For us, for Christians, suffering is never random. It can't be because God himself has chosen to embrace it. He's not stood aloof from it. And so it's, it's going to have meaning. It's going to have purpose. I'll give you another example. We might have talked about this before in a previous episode. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. It's obviously deep suffering, not, not just the hardships and privations of slavery, not the psychological and emotional and physical torment of being owned by another human being, but also being abandoned by your, your family, your brothers, the people who sh- you should be most safe with. It's obviously t- torment and evil. And at the end of that story, you know, for, for those of you who know the story, Joseph becomes a high, very high official in the government of Egypt, and his uh, brothers come to him at the end, and they want to say that they're sorry. And Joseph says to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The, the same event his brothers meant for evil, but the same event God meant for good. Joseph never at any point says, suffering's random. There's nothing you can do. You know, why does some person, one person get sick and another person don't get sick? Why does some person, why does one person lose their child and another person doesn't lose their, just nothing you can do. You just got to stick out your chin and face the day and say, I'm going to try again tomorrow. He never says that. Instead, he says, there is purpose and meaning in, in, in this, and God is meaning it for good. He does not mean that the suffering was good. He meant that he means that God is meaning it for good. God has purpose to do something good with it, and because of that, he can find hope in, he can find hope in the middle of that suffering. So explain to me, as you see it, the difference between offering a word of support or consolation and walking with someone in his or her suffering or grief. Offering a word of support can be a subset of walking with someone in their grief. Um, Walking with someone implies, I'm going to share this with you. I'm going to go on this journey of grief with you. That will from time to time include offering a word of consolation, but not necessarily. 
Sometimes it can, like I said, it can just mean presence. I, my uh, wife's brother passed away suddenly um, about 17, uh, uh, 18 years ago now, almost 19 years ago now. Um, and uh, when he passed away, the day that he died, suddenly we, were, we, we went to the hospital, um, left the hospital when there was nothing that we could do and he had passed away, went back to uh, my wife's parents' house, my in-law's house, and we were there, the most bizarre thing in, I've ever experienced, you know, to to lose somebody like that. I say bizarre, I mean, it was very painful, obviously, but it was also just flat out weird, just weird. And my, one of my, one of my most vivid memories from that day was um, uh, a woman named Marie, her, her and her husband, Clay, came over to the house and she had this big old, remember how gas stations, you could get this like 72 ounce beverage cup, refillable beverage cup, big plastic thing, like almost like a big uh, tankard, you know, with a handle on it. She, she just walked in the house, did not knock. She walked in the house. She had one of those. She kind of raised it up in the air, lowered it down on the dining room table with a thunk, and then just sat down and didn't say anything. and. Her presence there ended up being incredibly comforting. Like you knew she was distraught, but she was not going to turn her pain into the main character of the story. She just wanted to sit there with my in-laws. And she did. She talked every once in a while. It's like that quote that I read from Joe Bailey earlier earlier. That that was super comforting. And Oh, you know, looking back on it, we actually kind of, my wife and I, we kind of joke around about it a little bit now when we remember her coming in and raising that huge gas station mug and dropping it down onto the table with a thunk, as if to say, this is horrible, but I'm here and I'm not going to leave you guys. And th- th- that's walking with somebody is going to include that. It's also going to include saying a word, but it will take wisdom knowing when should I talk? And when should I not talk? And I would highly, highly, highly recommend not saying anything until you are convinced it is the right time to say something. And when you do talk, do not make yourself the teacher. Do not make yourself the fixer. Respond briefly. I have found, and this is super simple, not simple, simple, that when I'm with somebody- There's quite a difference there. Very, yeah. When when I'm with somebody who's grieving- uh, one of the main, one of the things I will say is, I, I don't really have a lot to say, but I just want you to know how much I love you, and I know God loves you. And I don't say that right off the bat, but when I do talk, it'll be something along those lines. Is words can't fix this, I, but I love you, and I know that God loves you too, and I'm not. I, I will be here. Just something along those lines. Th- those sorts of words of consolation, not words of fixing, but words of I love you. I won't leave you. I'm here whenever you need me. That's that is hugely important and powerful to people. That may be the best advice that we give that you give on this episode. Yeah, perhaps. We have spoken many times here on our podcast about the current epidemic of loneliness in our culture. There is no denying it, it's real. What happens when a person who is already lonely and maybe depressed, is then subsequently afflicted with one of these episodes causing serious suffering or or grief, strikes me as maybe being dangerous. Yeah, 
It could be. Now I'm trying to think if there's some, if, if 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 there's a scenario where, I, I mean, I have seen, I have seen people who are. I I'm not thinking of someone right now who's you know kind of chronically lonely, and this happens to, but somebody for whom when it rains it pours, somebody for whom you know they lose a child and then the year after that they lose a spouse or a parent, and a lot of times. You're right. It can be very, very, that's just sort of like being kicked when you're down can just ratchet up the pain and the sense of like, God, what are you doing? You know, where, where is there any hope or meaning or purpose in this? Um, sometimes people are prepared for it. Sometimes that first time of really suffering, deep pain and grief can be like, I would say the first time I really experienced it was when my wife's brother passed away. And I've experienced grief and pain since then, but I've never experienced the bizarreness, like I said, the weirdness of it. And sometimes that, the, the weirdness being over makes a difference. You're kind of used to it. Um, Jeremy's death, my, my brother-in-law's death, functions in my life as a kind of a dividing line, a before and after. The, 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 the Aaron that existed before that is the same person, of course, but... He, when I look at him now from across the years, he seems like sort of naive, kind of a, a not really an outspoken believer in the everything's great and life is happy. But I, I sort of bought into that. And and once something like that happens, a sudden loss where your world is shattered, you know that that's not the case anymore. That at any moment something bad can happen. Um, that's hard, but there's there's a certain amount of wisdom that comes along with that, that doesn't put stock in the tenuous happiness of daily existence, that there's, there's a need for a deep happiness underneath it. That's, that's going to have to, that's going to have to function as a foundation for my emotional and psychological well-being. that just life going along. Great. Can't suffice. And that, in that case, experiencing grief upon grief can be uh, helpful. It can be wisdom-inducing. It can even maybe at times function as a little bit of a wake-up call that I've put my weight on things that can't carry that weight, and now I need to find a, a more godly, deep sense of joy and contentment in something permanent and everlasting like Him. When an individual is in that dark valley, it may be true that a personal counselor or a trained psychologist is needed. Does the professional have something better to offer than the comfort that comes from a Christian friend? Uh, I wouldn't say better, but I would say uh, different and many, many times necessary. Uh, you don't always need a counselor or a therapist. You will always need good community. You'll always need good friends. A part of a, a grieving, though, it, it, for those of you who've grieved deeply or who are going to grieve deeply, I can just say this, is that you're going to need both. You're going to need people who will just sit with you and love you for you and not not think of you as a psychological problem that needs to be solved, but who just, they don't care if you're happy or if you're sad. They love you enough to be with you in, in all those cases. Um, you're going to need that, which by the way, a side, a little side, a little side topic here. Uh, not, not a side topic, but bonus point. Note the bene. If you, for, for those of you 
who are friends with somebody who's going to agree, which is all of us, you need to be aware that there's there's a moment, you know, there's the death, and then there's going to be, in many cases, a viewing and a funeral. And in that window between the death and the viewing and funeral, it's socially acceptable, in fact, encouraged to go and be with the person who's grieving. And so many of you will do this because it's appropriate. And you, you'll, most of you will handle it the right way. And if, if, if you're the kind of person who tends not to, maybe, you know, what we're talking about here today helps. But be aware that after the funeral is over, it is just as hard for the person who's lost that loved one. And what happens a lot of times is there's a lot of community in somebody's life in between the, the moment of death and the moment of the funeral. And then the funeral happens and you go to the cemetery, you know, if, if, if you're burying your, your loved one in a cemetery, you go to the cemetery for the committal and then people kind of give you a last pat on the shoulder or a hug and a love you. And they drive away and frequently the person who's bereaved will go home alone and just be alone. And that really alone, painfully alone, not only that their loved one isn't present, but also their friends who have been with them for the past few days will be gone and they won't come around because it's painful, but also not socially encouraged to go and be with somebody immediately afterwards. And I would just encourage to be sensitive to this. Many people will want some alone time, but almost everybody will want somebody around at some times. They don't want to be alone all the time. Be sensitive to that. Reach out to your loved ones after the funeral. But second thing, so community is absolutely essential. Second of all, what therapists and counselors can do is they can offer actual trained logistical help for how to deal with grief. And people will be people who are grieving are much more amenable to going to a counselor or a therapist that they know purely on a professional level and saying, can you give me tools? Can you talk to me logistically about steps to deal with this? That can be super helpful. Friends will not have that same, will not have that same ability. And it will actually be painful if a friend tries to step into your life as a know-it-all, I can fix this, fixer-upper, yeah. And so, but that doesn't mean that people don't need the logistical help for how to, you know, what a, a big thing will be how to, you know, how to grapple with the stages of grief. What should, what should I be looking for? What am I going to feel one week after the funeral that I'm not feeling right now, but if you can let me know what I'll be feeling then, it won't freak me out when I feel that. That's super helpful. I'll give you another, this isn't necessarily going to a specific professional counselor, but there's some great programs out there for how to deal with grief when you lose a loved one. And one of them is a program called Grief Share, which my church is about to start doing just for, for our church members. There's another church close to us here. Uh, if you're from the, 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 um, the east side of the river in the St. Louis area, I know not all of you are. But if you are, let me know, let us know, and I can hook you up with this church that does this program called Grief Share. Incredibly helpful for dealing with these sorts of logistical, how do I deal with the lot? How do I go to bed in a bed that I've always slept in? Well, for the past however many years I've slept with this other person and now they're gone. How do I do that? 
how do I grapple with the different stages of grief? There are great programs from that grief sh- for that grief share is one. Let me know and I can hook you up with that. But yeah, you kind of need both. You need community. You need people to walk with you, to put their arm around you and just love you. You also need, you very well could need some professional help to grapple with this stuff too. Finally, you've mentioned community here. And you know what? I knew you would. You've talked about- You always community. do. Yeah. How does all of our discussion today fit into the everyday business of life in the church? How does, quote unquote, love your neighbor as yourself inform our conversation today? In other words, I'm searching for an optimistic word. Yeah. uh, I was talking to a member of my church recently who um, a few years ago uh, left another church. Uh, One of their complaints with when they left this other church was that some deeply painful things had happened in this church. There had been the divorce of, of a family that was very much connected in the life of this church. People were friends with both spouses and for there to be a divorce and to sort of like create this, you know, who, who am I friends with here? That sort of conflict uh, you know, I, I love the husband, I love the wife, and now that's torn up. What do I do with that psychologically? Um, in another case, one of the church leaders had committed suicide, and then finally the church had fired their pastor against the wishes of many in the congregation. And um, she, what this person said to me was that at this church, everything was sort of like swept under the rug. Painful things, deeply painful things that had happened were dismissed out of the pursuit of, we just want to be happy with each other. People who were going through deep grief and pain were swept under a carpet because they were getting in the way of the good vibes or the the attempts to have good vibes. And what churches can do is to embrace the pain and suffering of each other, not to run from it but to jump on board and be ready for it. I quoted this earlier, but Paul says, and I want to say it's in Ephesians. It could be in 1 Corinthians. I apologize. I don't have the reference in the front of my head right now. That you know, Part of being a part of the body of Christ with each other is to rejoice with those who rejoice, but it's also to grieve with those who grieve and weep with those who weep. And that should be our deeper joy is the privilege of walking with the people that we love deeply and are connected to in the midst of every part of their life, including suffering, And to know that it's okay, that suffering is okay because God himself chose suffering. It's not something that's, you know, that devalues us. It's not something that makes us second-class citizens. It's not something to be run from. It's not a contagious disease, but it should be embraced. We should jump into it with both feet and really love each other enough to walk with each other. And what we'll find is we'll find that the community that we're in, if we embrace this life of shared suffering, is a community that looks a lot more like Jesus than a community that just embraces the good times. Also, it's a community that will be much more emotionally and psychologically and mentally healthy because people will feel safe to be broken and 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 hurting around other people because they know that I'm loved enough that people will walk with me in compassion. Well, thanks for listening to this edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. If you would like to comment on our show or leave a suggestion for a future topic, please contact us by sending an email to cacg at stjamesglencarbon.org.
Our listeners have proven to be a great source of topics. For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rathard.